Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. I have got Helen with me and we are going to try and make sense of where things are, not just in Britain, but with many of the things we've been talking about this year. May, Merkel, Macron, Muller. And at the end, I'm going to answer some of the interesting comments I've had about the idea of children getting the vote. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, the magazine that publishes its political analysis in between essays on art and history, philosophy and technology, Princess Margaret or the Garden of Eden. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash talking for a reading list of similarly eclectic pieces to accompany today's episode and a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. Six months of the LRB for just £1 an issue. So it is just me and Helen today. Helen has dragged herself off her sickbed to be here. We often feel that we have to say this is Wednesday morning. Today, that is a particularly important thing to note because we discovered a couple of hours ago that there's going to be a leadership contest to see if Theresa May can carry on as Prime Minister. And we won't know the result until this evening and this podcast goes out tomorrow morning. So you will know something that we don't know. We'll record a little bit extra tonight with some thoughts, probably just from me, about the final result. But I think there's probably quite a lot we can talk about without knowing exactly what's going to happen. I think Helen and I both suspect that Theresa May will win this vote, though what counts as a win is an open question. Before it was clear the vote was going to happen and I was thinking this morning about some of the things that we we're going to talk about one basic question is how many cards she's got left to play one of them was a leadership contest that she wins and do you think I mean if you look at the possibilities facing her if she carries on as prime minister even just if it's for another couple of months what she got left in her political arsenal I mean I, I think there's one thing she's still got going for her which I'll come on to in a sec but do you think there's there's anything left I think that she's got some, you know, potential for getting something from the European Union. It, it might be symbolic, but it could be importantly symbolic in the sense of something that suggests that there are good reasons to think that the backstop won't be necessary. Now, that won't be enough to appease, you know, the ERG, but it, I think it will calm down some of those people who have defected away from her in the last... 10 days or so because it did look like things were going a bit more in her favour in the parliamentary party in the last 10 days they seem to have swung back against her I think the other thing she's probably got going for her is, is that she could assuming that she does win tonight but there was a significant vote against her say that she will leave once Britain's left the European Union so she kind of dedicates herself now simply to the question of getting Britain out of the European Union and leaves up for the future the question of who amongst the Conservative Party is going to be the leader that negotiates the trade agreement thereafter or tries to negotiate the trade agreement thereafter. So one thing that has changed even just today is that it looked like the crucial meeting was going to be in Ireland if she was going to get anything meaningful, not least because the Europeans have been saying that from their point of view what they're doing is defending the Irish position on this. She's now not travelling to Dublin. She's got to survive the next 12 hours. But is there anything meaningful that she can get by way of a concession that doesn't essentially come out of Dublin? I think that's a pretty hard question to answer because a lot of this is going to be about 
words rather than actual actions. I, I just don't think it's realistic to think that the the European Union and certainly not the Irish government is going to reopen the question of the backstop in its its substance. It is going to have to stay and be part of this agreement. It's the question of how it is interpreted and whether she can reduce the risk that it is seen as something that is being designed to keep Britain in perpetuity trapped in it. Because that is a not unreasonable fear, despite what you know, the arguments against the fear, but it's not unreasonable to think that it's been designed for that purpose, even though I don't actually think that it has. Because one of the basic asymmetries here is there is only one other political leader whose own domestic political career hangs on the outcome of this, and that is Vardikar in Ireland. Other European leaders, they have a stake in it and they have some principles at stake, but their own domestic audiences are not watching to see whether or not they back down. But his is. He's had a, he's had a pretty good Brexit. I think it's fair to say the Irish have negotiated this pretty well and pretty toughly, but he's kind of boxed in too. I mean, that's one of the oddities of this situation. He doesn't want a hard Brexit any more than Theresa May does, a no-deal Brexit. But he hasn't got much room to step away from this deal. He hasn't got much room to step away from the deal, I agree. I think the other thing, though, that does start to matter is that the German and Italian economies have certainly, almost certainly had contracted in the last quarter conceivably not the Italian but certainly the German the French I would have thought are heading that way given what has happened there in the latest economic data so it's not out of the question that the core if you like of the Eurozone could be in recession by March I don't think it's actually likely but there's not you know implausible scenario in which the German economy is so that is actually a new constraint on the French and the German governments, which are obviously the major players still, despite you know the efforts of others in the Hanseatic League to try to to change that. What that they can't take the risk of another economic shock. Yeah, they are. They're at their limit. Of- they are at the limit of the economic shock. I mean, I think the situation with the eurozone economies, or at least some of the eurozone economies, should rephrase that, has deteriorated quite significantly in a relatively short period of time. So a shock that comes in the end of March in economies that are already strained is something that any government is going to worry about politically they just it's just inconceivable that they can't not worry about that so it's hard to know exactly how to talk about this given we don't know the outcome so if it turns out that Theresa May is not prime minister by the time you hear this treat this by way of valedictory comments about her personality rather than one of the cards that she still has at her disposal I want to come on in a second to the question of timing. So we, we've we already had in this vote, this leadership vote, a significant shift in the sequence of events. But looking at the last week, I was struck by the one thing that she seems to still have, which almost no one else in this has, is sincerity, in that she sounds to me like she really believes it. Some people have called it serenity, that she seems like calm in the eye of the storm. But actually, I think that when she says she thinks this is the only deal... When she says it's the best deal, it's partly that thing. Anyone who's worked in a complicated organisation knows that the people who spent 18 months trying to get something done are much more committed to the view that this is the only way it could go than the people who are carping from the outside. But she, she really seems to believe it. And that's part of what's annoying her colleagues in the Conservative Party, particularly on the back benches. I mean, their sense that she actually thinks that this is the best deal is abhorrent to them. But it is one of her assets in the country. And I think that that sense that one gets of public opinion that she has got some respect for what she's doing is partly because, unlike, I have to say, Jeremy Corbyn and many people on the opposition side, but also within her own party, she is saying it like she sees it. 
I think I'll go even uh, even further than that. I'm not even sure that she thinks that it's the best deal, but I think that what she conveys is, is that this is where we are now. It would be astonishing if she didn't have some regrets about the ways in which these negotiations have gone, some sense that there are things that she could have done differently. But when she stood in the House of Commons and said, if you will the ends, that you will the means, there's not many people who could have stood up with her and said that they were doing the same thing. Certainly not in regard to the act of Brexit itself. And, you know, I think that the big picture stuff that is in her favour is is that a House of Commons, not this House of Commons, voted by a six-to-one majority to hold a referendum. Then more than 400 of these MPs voted to trigger Article 50 that gave her government the authority to go and try to negotiate a withdrawal agreement. And, and also set this timeline that they're now saying is the intolerable yeah. timeline. And, and then they're saying, oh, we don't like what you've done. But you know, there's nothing in the British Constitution whatsoever that says that Parliament gets to do, engage in negotiations. It's a prerogative of the executive. Parliament gets to vote on it at the end of it, but they do not Parliament does not get to conduct the negotiations. They know this perfectly well, yet they act as if they don't know that that is the case, that they've got some veto over every little aspect of it, down to substance and down to timing. So she comes over as one of the few people who's actually being honest. And I think the other thing that comes out is is that she clearly does want to carry on being Prime Minister whether it's rational for her to want to count being Prime Minister is another matter. But she manages to convey at least that that isn't her preoccupation, that her preoccupation is that Brexit must be realised because a referendum was held, leave won, and Parliament decided to act upon that basis. The people in the ERG, and Boris Johnson in particular, act like they want to use Brexit in order to advance either an individual being in power in the case of becoming Prime Minister in the case of of Boris Johnson or a particular economic transformative agenda in the case of some other people in the ERG. In the Labour Party is the leadership acts like they see Brexit first and foremost as an opportunity to seize power, to take power without having to wait for the length of the fixed term of this Parliament. They've never engaged with Brexit in a substantive sense. They've treated it as a purely tactical question. Now, in one sense, that is understandable because of the predicament in which the party has found itself. A predicament, it must be said, that has been exacerbated by the not insignificant number of stop Brexit voters who decided that a party that was committed to implementing Brexit was going to be the party that they were going to vote for. But nonetheless, Corbyn does not act like a man who is seriously engaged with the substance of delivering Brexit. And Theresa May stands out because that is what she looks like she's trying to do. So what does it say about Brexit if the one person who engages seriously with it on its own merits as an issue is the person whose job will, in the end, sooner or later, be lost because of that? Does that mean it is, in a sense, the undoable problem? It's the thing that that is breaking something in British politics? I think that that's a pretty interesting question. I think that we have to go back, though, to the, the circumstances of what happened when the referendum result came out. And that was it immediately precipitated the end of the previous government because of Cameron's resignation. It then almost nearly immediately precipitated a crisis of confidence in Corbyn's leadership. So both parties at the top, well, actually at the top in the one case and the backbenches and around it in Parliament in, in the other case, responded by acts of internal party management, essentially. Now, that meant that building any kind of coalition around 
political consensus about what was going to happen next in terms of the substance of Brexit was incredibly difficult because of what both parties decided to do in response to what happened. Then you've got the difficulty of the the general election, that it not only produced a minority government, but it produced a minority government that produced a supply and confidence agreement with the one party that was in the most vexed position in regard to the outcome of Brexit negotiations because of the question of the the Irish border. You couldn't come up with a a worse domestic political figuration. I mean, if you wanted to say, how bad could it possibly be in terms of a domestic political configuration to realise the vote of the referendum? It would be what we've got. That was going to be one of my questions, because looking back at what was the point at which we got on this path that leads to whatever's going to happen today, the general election does seem absolutely central to this. Because we record this on Wednesday morning, I think I have a slight structural bias in that I tend to have just read Daniel Finkelstein's column in The Times, which comes out on Wednesday. It's very interesting, usually. So today's one makes a very important point to think about the difficulty here from any minority government, which could conceivably win a substantive vote on the big issue of the day, but is going to really struggle to pass the legislation, the repeated amendments and other pieces of legislation to get this into law because it's all very well for ha- to have a one-off vote where members of the opposition party support the government, but to expect them to do it week after week after week is going to be hard for whoever is Prime Minister. And that's a fundamental difference with the situation that Theresa May thought she would have. Two things would have been true. Say she'd won a majority of 40. There wouldn't have been a leadership challenge because with a majority of 40, she could have always have seen it off. And secondly, she could, if she could get through the one-off vote, pass the legislation neither she nor any successor of hers is going to find it easy to do the actual parliamentary legwork to get this into law, even if they can get through a meaningful vote. I mean, I cannot see how there will be a parliamentary majority for whatever, assuming for the moment that there is, even though I don't think there will be an ERG-approved Conservative leader, will not have a parliamentary majority for what it wants to do. I mean, Theresa May cannot keep the more remain supporting Conservative MPs on site. So how on earth is Boris Johnson going to do the same? And there simply aren't enough Democratic Unionists in order to make the parliamentary arithmetic add up. The other essential question that arises, whatever happens with Theresa May, whoever winds up as Prime Minister, never mind the legislation, is the meaningful vote. At some point, Parliament has got to agree what this means. And... We like historical comparisons. The one that came to mind with me, and this relates to the timing, is Blair getting the vote through the Commons on the Iraq War. There are some comparisons here. It was, I think we forget, relatively speaking, how precarious that was. His government could have fallen. There was a huge vote against him from within his own party. He got through with the support of the opposition, the Conservatives. But he had the huge advantage of timing, and I think it was partly brilliant parliamentary management, which is that he resisted a vote until the very last minute. So that if you go back to the speech he made in the Commons, it was a very effective speech. But its bottom line was, if you vote this down now, we are days away from an invasion and British forces are massed on the borders of Iraq and they will have to retreat. We'll actually have to pull them out. So he got them in before the vote. If the vote had happened before they were there and he didn't have that argument, I actually think his government would have fallen. The reason the analogy breaks down with Brexit is that... Almost the opposite has to be the case. She has to not prepare for no deal to get to the point where the knife edge argument works so that if you turn this down, the next day something bad will happen. 
unlike with Blair, where he prepares for it, he puts his troops in. So he says, you can't now pull them out. In this case, as you get closer to the possibility of no deal, to make that effective, you mustn't prepare. But not to prepare as you get closer also starts to look reckless and irresponsible. And clearly, the only way this works is to sequence it so that by the time you get to the meaningful vote, the only options that are not palatable are the ones left on the table, and then the one that's left is your one. Again, I really struggle relative to the Iraq case to see how you get there. Waiting, delaying this, which may happen. I mean, she said if she survives that a vote will happen before the 21st of January, but say a vote gets delayed till much, much closer to the cliff edge. I don't see how you get there without it, before you get there, it precipitating a loss of confidence in the government because the preparation hasn't been made. I agree. And the thing is, is that you've got people who are willing to gamble on both sides of opposing the withdrawal agreement. And you haven't got, in that sense, it's a three-way conflict. Well, it's much more than that, but for this purpose, it can be a three-way conflict, whereas it's a binary question in the case of the Iraq war. And you've got people on, you know, from extremely different positions, let's say Johnson and Blair, who keep commenting in some sense on the fact that they agree when, of course, they don't agree at all. But they're both fueling their supposed agreement because both of them are prepared to gamble in order to get their first choice outcome. And so it it is a staggered choice. And her deal is actually the obvious compromise. It's just that too many people on both sides want what they think of is the optimal outcome and do not see any reason yet to give up on it. So then the question becomes, is there a point in which you can engineer it so that enough on at least one side of those have to give up on their optimal outcome? Do you think that when historians look back on this, however it finally plays out, they'll find it hard to explain how a Prime Minister who is positioning herself somewhere in the compromised position, who has many virtues, including not just sincerity, but the things that people have come to appreciate about her durability, a kind of doggedness, a sense of public service how she and her deal became so not just disparaged, but loathed, reviled. I mean, the language that's used against it, that it is this fundamental betrayal, it's a compromise. What does it say about our politics that the compromise is the fundamental betrayal? I get why she might have really wound people up. I imagine she's quite difficult to work with and around if you're not in her inner inner circle. She clearly frustrates people with the way that she simply isn't responsive to their demands to change course. But there is a kind of violence and vitriol around the loathing of her and her position that I just still, I struggle to bridge that gap. Why do they hate her so much? I don't know that I know the answer to this question, but I think there are there's several different things going on. First of all is, is that she's not the kind of person whom, let's just say, most people in the British political class, or to some extent the media class, I think as well, easily like. In fact, they have a sort of a pretty strong tendency to dislike, partly because of her communication style, partly because she's just, as I said before, there's just something so very introverted about her, so she doesn't project her presence in any way. So enough people who, who simply don't think that that kind of personality can be the leader of a, of a country... So I think that that's something. I think there's actually some snobbery in all that as well. I think 
Then there's the question of her competence. And I think that that sort of takes two forms. The first question is about how competent number 10 is. And I think that there are, you know, reasonable grounds for people in the Conservative Party to say that it's a very ineffective operation, certainly in terms of its communication. It's extremely ineffective. And it should be said, she has not been well served by her chief whip over this. I mean, that seems to me if there's anyone who does carry some of the can for just getting the expectations game wrong. And the media strategy, I think, is poor at times appalling. I think that when she turned towards checkers and she went on the Andrew Marr programme to try to explain why that was and why she had taken a different position than what had been in the Conservative manifesto, I thought she was actually shockingly bad in trying to explain that. She didn't seem to understand the gravity of of what she was doing and I think that she didn't understand how much discontent that was going to produce in the Conservative Party, not just in the parliamentary party but within constituency associations as well. And then I think that there's a question of the you know, agreement itself and how it's come about and how it came to be dominated by the backstop and the sense that it was an unnecessary trap that she got herself into. Now, whether it was or whether it wasn't, that's a question that I think is, is a bit too difficult to tell. But there's no doubt that there's plenty of people in the Conservative Party who simply have at least convinced themselves that they cannot possibly understand how she could have got Britain trapped into the backstop. And then there's just the fact that there are a group of people in the Conservative Party who clearly want somebody else to lead the party and will use whatever arguments are available from Brexit. And Brexit is going to generate any number of arguments because it is going to involve compromise if it is going to um, happen that will be at their disposal. And I think that the other part of the explanation has got to come from the state of the opposition in the sense that, you know, there would be a scenario, I think, under a a Labour Party that was perhaps led by somebody else in which there would be a little bit more help on offer from the opposition and that isn't available and so that means that the pressures on her in terms of things that make her look incompetent are much higher than they might otherwise have been. So by the time you hear this you'll know whether that was a valediction or a description of someone who is going to try and negotiate Britain's exit from the European Union. I'm going to record something this evening to respond to the result. I'm not entirely sure how or what I'll have to say, but at least we'll be able to register what happened. Let's talk about another politician who is hated in a way that, again, is surprising, maybe in some ways less surprising given his style, but seems to have come as a surprise to him. So what's happened to Macron in France, and we will join up this with some of those economic issues you mentioned just now, and particularly also things that have happened in Germany. But if you look at Macron's predicament and the possibility actually that what's happening in France will in the long term be more significant for the future of Europe than what happens to Theresa May today. Macron, it turns out, is absolutely loathed by a significant portion of the French electorate. So probably not loathed by a majority, but loathed by enough, a big enough minority, and then disliked probably by a majority. And something about this has caught him unawares. I'm not totally sure what. One possibility here, and I think we've talked about this before, is that he misjudged the nature of his mandate when he won, and that the key election was the first round, not the second round of the French presidential system, where he won 24% of the vote. That's his support. Everything else has to be coalition building. Everything else has to be compromised. And he has governed as the guy who won 66% of the vote in the second round. Was that his fundamental mistake, do you think? I mean, that's what I 
tend to feel. I don't think he's going to repeat it. I think he knows where he is now. But he governed for a while as though he was the clear winner with the support of nearly two-thirds of the French public behind him. Yeah, I think that most of Macron's problems were entirely predictable. From it should the, be said that our colleague Chris Bickerton uh, predicted quite a few of them. From the start, and that he became the French president, you know, essentially because Fillon, the candidate of the right, of the Republican Party, was irreparably damaged by the, the problems... Fact, of his, if he hadn't paid his wife yeah, not the, to work for him, he would now be president of France. Without that, Macron doesn't get into the second round. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Then there's the fact that he still only managed to get around two-thirds of the vote against the National Front candidate on a low turnout with plenty of abstentions. I mean, I think I said at the time, I mean, this is, was staggering that somehow Macron's victory was presented as Europe is back, which is a phrase that kept being put around when, you know, a third of the French electorate had just voted for a National Front candidate to be president. And then there's what Macron did himself, which was to present himself simultaneously as part of the populist movement, because he was, you know, beyond the existing parties and the establishment wasn't working for France any longer. And then simultaneously presenting himself as a kind of as establishment figure as you could possibly expect in in French um, politics. So he goes from being anti-establishment in much of his rhetoric to talking almost immediately and taking office about being, you know, ruling as if he's Jupiter. I mean, none of this added up from the start. And he was also extremely politically inexperienced. And he'd been a minister in Hollande's government, but he'd not run for office before. He created essentially what was a personality, a cult around him and sort of half institutionalised it into this movement party. But he didn't have any penetration outside, really outside Paris and the kinds of upper middle class professionals who rallied um, to him. And I don't think it's any surprise in this respect that a lot of this rebellion now has come from outside Paris. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Maybe we can try and tie some of this together and put this in the wider European context because another group of people, I think we've known this for a while, but they've been reveling in it this week, who really hate Macron is the political leadership in Italy because of the feuds they've been having over immigration, but also migration, I should say, but also over the budget. So the fact that Macron's concessions mean that France is probably going to breach or maybe almost certainly going to breach the EU budget rules, the Italians are reveling in this and they're using this as another lever. So there are two questions here, one of which is Macron's weakness internally in France, I think, will play out over an extended period. But in the shorter term, it is very significant for Europe because, Helen, as you've told us a lot, things are happening quite fast in relation to Italy, in relation to the end of QE in Europe, the strains that are coming in the new year. Macron's leadership of the continent now looks like a busted flush, to be frank. In Germany, we've got the name of the new 
probable future leader, the successor to Angela Merkel. It's a name that's going to take some remembering, I think, for non-Germans. It's Angerat Kramp-Karrenbauer. I think she'll become known as AKK, certainly, outside of Germany, if she isn't already. But Germany is weak. Merkel is weak. Merkel, it's a long goodbye. Maybe with Macron, it's a long goodbye. The Italians are exultant. This is a dangerous time for Europe with a vacuum of leadership, regardless of what happens with Brexit, isn't it? Isn't this actually the next two to three months potentially really quite precarious? I think one of the things that has happened or did happen was that 2017 was a year in which any number of illusions took hold about the future of the European Union beyond Brexit and in particular the future of the Eurozone and Macron's election was part of that. But so was growth that was better than it had been in the Eurozone. But the idea that in any sense that the Eurozone crisis went away because growth was a few decimal point places better in 2017 than it was in 2016 was a non-starter in terms of the economics of it and in terms of the politics of it. The issues of like how to reform the Eurozone were just being kicked into touch. And what we have seen, I think, now is, is that Nobody can have any illusions any longer that Macron makes any difference to this. I mean, as I say, I think it was just a delusion to think that he was going to. And Macron seemed to convince himself that he was making a deal with Germany, whereby he got the French budget deficit decisively under 3%. He reformed the French economy, and then the German government would give Macron what he wanted in terms of Eurozone reform. But I, I think... That missed the fact that there were plenty of others other than the Germans who were not keen on, in fact, were deeply opposed to Macron's um, Eurozone reform agenda and simply getting Merkel's agreement to it, even if that would have been forthcoming, which I don't think it was ever going to be, was not going to get him what he wanted. But I, I think it also was hubris in this sense and that it misunderstood what had happened in terms of the French-German relationship, is, is that Macron seemed to interpret what happened in terms of the loss of French influence in terms of the breakdown of the Franco-German axis that had dominated the European Union for a long time and that putting Macron in charge of France was supposedly going to mean the return of France, almost like make France great again in terms of the, the European Union. And the point of contrast was with Hollande. But I think if you look at what happened in 2000, and, well, really from the beginning of the Eurozone crisis in 2010, and then what happened with the change of presidency from Sarkozy to Hollande was is that the first stage of the Eurozone crisis was very much about France, Germany. Partly that was a question of the French and the German banks having the same predicament. But the term that was used a lot, which then obviously got completely forgotten about, was that term Mercosi, because it was Merkel and Sarkozy who together managed the first stage of the Eurozone crisis and were very disciplining towards Italy. That's what led to the removal of Berlusconi, but also towards Greece and the exit of Papandreou. So it wasn't that France and Germany had an access that meant that there was some deal that could be made between France and Germany about how the Eurozone was going to be reformed. The French and the Germans were acting together, if you like, to discipline the southern European members. And then when Hollande was elected, he abandoned the alliance with Germany for effectively, at least to begin with, siding with the southern European members. And Macron was a member of that government. And Macron was a member of that. Um, and indeed made offers to the Greeks to be the person who would broker this. I mean, yeah. <laughs> and Merkel, that... Merkel shut him, shut him down. Away like, a, like a fly and showed her irritation with him about it. So Macron seemed to think that 
if he went back to being okay, the France could be on the side of being a, if you like, a, a bad cop with the Germans again in relation to the Southern Europeans, that that was also going to open up the Germans doing what he wanted on Eurozone reform. But there was never any basis for thinking about that whatsoever. The Germans government, it can't because of domestic politics, cannot agree to a change the monetary union into a single currency that involves debt sharing. Macron acted like that was a possibility. It was never a possibility. The, the most he could ever do was going back to the role that Sarkozy had played with Merkel. In a way, does it help that the illusions have been dispelled? So whatever Macron might have thought he was doing, his authority as the person who said, I'm going to rescue Europe, is gone. Not only is he breaching the rules, but I'd have said that the hubristic damage to him is greater as a person who can go to European summits and tell other people how the world should work. And it's not coming back. I don't know if he can recover his position in France. It seems unlikely, but in domestic politics, you never know. But in European politics, I don't see a, a way back. So we're clearer now, aren't we, in one sense, as to what the range of possibilities is. It's narrower and it's back to something where we were before, where it, it depends on the Germans. What's been made clear is that the single currency is not going to be reformed. So it's stuck in this impasse. It can't be a single currency that involves political union and, and a debt union, because not just the Germans, but others won't agree to that. But it doesn't have sufficient economic convergence to be a single currency that can work without a political union or a debt union. So it's stuck in this impasse and it's going to keep having disruptive consequences, not only for the Eurozone, but for the whole of the European Union. Do you think one of the illusions, and it's a more recent illusion, and this connects it back to Brexit, was the relative ease with which the European 27 held the line in those negotiations, created a false impression that there was a sense over the past few months that there is a a unity there, a kind of political unity. And the reason I think that's false is that they were essentially defending the Irish position. I think it was this was being led by Ireland. Fair enough. I mean, I'm, I'm not in any sense criticising it. It makes sense. But it's not. it was not a sign of any kind of wider sharing of opinions, perspectives, interests. It was a complete one-off to be able to hold the line on this. It doesn't translate over into anything else. But it feels like it's part of the illusion. Europe kind of felt stronger because Brexit didn't seem to be breaking it. Yeah, I think that um, that narrative was helped by what happened in 2017 with the improvement in the Eurozone economy or the surface. A corner had been turned, and one of the signs of this is that we are actually dealing with Brexit like grown-ups. I think that you know, a lot of people in this country also who want to oppose Brexit also were very willing to deploy this, Europe is back, look, the Eurozone economy is you know recovering entirely, ignoring the fact that it had negative interest rates and huge amounts of QE propping it up. And I think that what Brexit showed in terms of the negotiations with Britain was that the, the really hard questions for not just the European Union, for Britain, about the future relations were all going to be kicked into touch. They weren't going to be part of the withdrawal agreement. So it was relatively simple, not entirely straightforward, but relatively simple for the European Union 27 to concentrate in a relatively unified way on the things that had to be sorted out in the withdrawal agreement. And that came to focus on the Irish border question. It was also clear that there were governments within the European Union who were not necessarily that happy with taking huge risks with the future relations with Britain, but weren't, at least for the time being, going to expend significant political capital within European politics of trying to oppose 
that. And so I think at the same time, you can see that the European Union internal politics was changed by Brexit. I don't think it would have been the case that the new Hanseatic League, as it's come to be called, would have emerged without the Dutch in particular thinking that they had to do something in response to Britain, which had been an ally on a number of not least economic questions. And the Dutch Prime Minister has actually been relatively explicit about that. So we're left with a, a European Union that can deal with a set of in some sense, process issues, which was what the withdrawal agreement is about, without causing itself too much difficulties. But I cannot see that it can deal with the future relations between Britain and the European Union without becoming more divided. And I I would expect at this point, or that point, assuming we get there, that relations between the French government and the German government have become much more fought about Brexit than they look like they've been so far. I said we would come to America at the end. I'm just going to do this briefly because we're going to talk about this a lot in the new year. We're not going to go into the ins and outs of the Mueller investigation here. Brexit doesn't exist in a vacuum. It relates to what happens in Europe. Europe doesn't exist in a vacuum. It relates to what happens in the wider world, including the wider global economy. There may be a global recession coming. The United States economy is not looking as though it's something to rely on for the next two years. And Trump certainly can't rely on it for the next two years. There is a basic question, and this is the last thing I'm going to try and link up, that connects Brexit and Trump from the point of view of the people who want to oppose these two things. So if you want to stop Brexit, and if you want Trump out of the White House, in both cases you face a choice, which is there is a way of doing it without going to the people. Brexit could be stopped by Parliament, and we now know the European Court has said that. Or you could have a second referendum. The risk of a second referendum is that you lose it or it produces, you lose control. If it stays in Parliament, you can control it, but you don't get a popular mandate for what you've done. You want to get Trump out, you could impeach him. You could do it through Congress. You could use law, although it's politics really, but law as politics. Or, as many people have said, it would be better for him to lose an election. The risk is if you wait to 2020, he could win it. In both cases, I think that is a a difficult calculation to make. If this is your absolute priority, whether it's to stop Brexit or to get rid of Trump, you have to make that choice. I think other things being equal, people would rather these things were stopped or undone by the people and not by the people's representatives. But the trouble is you don't know what the people are going to do. With Trump, let's leave Brexit out of it. With Trump, I mean, my instinct is they should go for the election and not try and impeach him. I think impeachment would probably open up a whole new set of toxic divisions in American politics. But it's not by any means clear, even if there is a recession in the United States, that Trump is sure to go down in 2020. It is a gamble. I think it's really difficult. I think in in democratic politics that elections have to be the means by which consent is expressed. And that those in the United States who want to impeach Trump and those in in Britain who would allow or let Parliament stop Brexit by simply revoking Article 50 are people who aren't really thinking through the political consequences of what would ensue. We've already seen in the United States when it comes to impeachment that actually it is pretty difficult to do. I mean, Clinton proved that or Clinton managing to survive the impeachment process. And what you've got in the both of the impeachment cases of possibly against Trump and against Clinton is 
legal investigations that were set up on, at best, complicated grounds in the first place, and at worst, pretty dubious grounds, starting in one place, Whitewater and allegations of collusion with the Russians, that if they deliver something in Trump's case, it's likely to be about campaign finance and became about Clinton and Monica Lewinsky in Clinton's case and and Clinton lying to a grand jury. where It's just transparent that the people who are pushing this are doing it in order to undo the consequences of an election. And that seems to me, regardless of what you think about Trump in the White House or or Brexit, you are running you know enormous political risks in the kinds of political times in which we live to go down these routes. So we're going to do two more things today. Uh, both are going to be me. Uh, after the vote this evening, I'm going to record a response. We'll see where we are. We're thinking that Theresa May is going to win, but even what winning means means something different depending on the numbers. I also, just because it did provoke such a strong reaction, so many people seem to be interested in it. It was very gratifying. The talk I gave last week, the ideas I put out there, which ended with the idea that maybe we should lower the voting age to something really dramatically different, like six, produced lots of messages to me. Lots of people were really interested in it. Lots of people were very critical of it. A few themes came out, and I thought it would be good just to pick up on a couple of things that people, a number of people said. I think the more I've thought about it, the more I'm comfortable with defending it, even though it was clearly an idea that somewhere on the fringes of what people think is uh, makes political sense. But the responses were really interesting. So one thing that quite a few people said, which is in theory, it's kind of a, a nice idea, but in practice, obviously what it would mean is just giving more votes to parents. Effectively, if children vote, especially young children, they're going to vote in the way that their parents tell them. So you're just doubling or more, the number of votes for parents. And that may be true. I think one of the things about something like this is no one knows how it would play out. It did strike me that that was the argument that was made against votes for women quite often. It took a long time for women to get the vote. Many arguments were deployed against it, but one that was repeatedly made was it was effectively just giving two votes to husbands. Obviously, there's a big difference, children and votes for women. But I don't think we should be entirely sure that children would do what their parents said. I don't also think we should be entirely sure it would be a bad thing because something that has often been said, there are various proposals that have been floated over recent years, even decades, to try and address what seem like some of the imbalances in politics and the problem that democracies have in thinking about the future is that parents should get more votes anyway. It's sometimes said that you should get an extra vote for having kids. That would be a bad idea. No one should have two votes. Allowing children a vote, if they did what their parents said, if they did what their grandparents said, it would be fine. Maybe their grandparents would do what they said. I haven't seen it, though I've seen clips of it, the TV series where four-year-olds and eight-year-olds get together and bond. I kind of quite like the thought of a politics of that, not maybe four-year-olds, but um, bringing children in, I don't think we should be sure we know how that would play out. Something else that a number of people have said, and I take, these are all really good points and absolutely fair criticisms, is that children just are much more vulnerable. We need to be very aware that democratic politics is a rough business, easily manipulated, and children would need a lot of protection, to which I would say absolutely they would. There would be no way that this would conceivably work if it would ever work without taking seriously the thought that seeking votes among children is quite a delicate business and it needs to be strongly regulated. That said, I think we all of us are aware that democratic politics 
to do with some protection across the board. I think we're all quite easily manipulated. We're discovering in new ways, fresh ways. We maybe don't take seriously enough, as we should, regulating the electoral process and being serious about how new technology could change the dynamics of voting and consent. If having children in the process led people to take it more seriously, that wouldn't be a bad thing. If politicians had to go into schools trawling for votes, I suspect they would behave slightly more scrupulously. I think when people go into schools and talk to kids, they tend to behave better. I mean, the assumption is the bad stuff in politics would feed into the schools. What if the good stuff in the schools fed back into politics? Quite a lot of people have said they like the idea, which is good. I'd say more people don't like it, but there you go. But among those people, I would say it splits evenly between those who've said to me, six is insane, but 12, that would be a reasonable thing. So 16 seems a bit mealy-mouthed, let's go to 12. And other people who have said, well, six is arbitrary, it should be zero. I mean, if you're going to do this, it should be a human right. It should be the thing that comes with you as being a human being. And there has been quite a long-standing argument, again, on the fringes of political theory of people who've argued that voting should just be something that comes with being alive. And I think these are all really interesting arguments. I, I'm not sure I'm passionately committed to my position relative to either of them. I think 12 would be good too. I guess the reason I went for six was partly because it makes the point much more starkly that there is this swathe of people who are disenfranchised uh, and we never really think about it. I'm uncomfortable with zero just because I want to get away from the idea that it would have to be by proxy. If it's zero, then children in the first year of their life under no conditions can actually vote, whereas six-year-olds can vote. But I think the thing I was trying to suggest is it should go with education. Actually, it should go with going to school. In Britain, people go to school too young anyway. Four is too young. The best education systems in the world formal schooling there's lots of informal schooling but formal schooling starts at six and if formal schooling began with the knowledge that you were going to participate in democratic politics I would be excited by that so one other thing that people have said and this is the one I think this is the only one I feel strongly about all the other stuff I think it's I am actually delighted that people are talking about this even if some of it is outrage because at least we're not talking about Brexit although many people assume that secretly what I'm talking about is Brexit Something that people have said is, if this is an argument, people who've heard the podcast and understand it's coming out of a longer argument about ageing and ageing societies, and if the worry here is that democratic politics is skewed towards the old and with increasing numbers of people at the other end of the scale not having their votes taken away from them, it doesn't make sense to kind of balance it out with kids. Why not just cut it off at the other end? So why not say voting runs from 18 to 75? And a number of people have said that that makes more sense than giving the vote to people who don't know what they're doing. I think that is a bad idea. So that's the one where I do feel strongly that you should never take votes away from people ever. It's true that there is one category of citizens who do have their votes taken away from them. I don't, on the whole, approve of this, but there is an argument for it, which is criminals, people who go to jail. But if you're going to justify that, there is a justification for it, which is that it's a form of punishment. You take away people's liberty, you can take away some of their other civil rights as well. If, if you think that's a good idea, my own view is that you should, whenever possible, not take votes away from people. You cannot punish people for growing old. That is not how to think about any form of politics. You cannot punish people for having dementia. You cannot punish people for the things that happen to them naturally that are part of the human condition. Taking votes away from people 
can only be a form of punishment. You shouldn't do it. So I don't think that that's an option. And I suppose, I don't want to repeat what I said last week, but one of the points I was trying to make is that when democracies get stuck, historically, the way out has been enfranchising people who haven't got the vote, whether it's the poor, whether it's reducing property qualifications, abolishing them, minorities, women, through various civil rights movements. When I wrote the book that I wrote this time last year and published this year about the possible end of democracy, I was thinking about this argument. And I did have to say, I did assume that it doesn't work anymore because we've kind of enfranchised everyone we could enfranchise. And so we've got to find some other way out of this mess. But I have increasingly come to feel there is a final frontier of enfranchisement, which is the enfranchisement of children. There is a significant section of the population who don't have the vote, who just about potentially, at least it's worth thinking about, could. But the real point I was trying to make is I don't think it's a particularly dangerous idea. So I'm I'm struck by the outrage that it's caused. I mean, some people are really, really angry that someone like me should say something like this, and they think I must be joking. I'm not joking. Um, I'm trying to introduce an idea that people don't talk about much. I'm not joking. But the thing I'm really serious about is that we're doing lots of really reckless things in politics. Lots of things are happening through democratic politics. And I'm not just talking about Brexit and Trump. I mean, in relation to automation and climate change and long-term future options, if you think I'm being dark, wait till you hear Martin Rees's uh, existential risk episode we're putting out in a few weeks. There's some serious stuff out there. Changing the voting system by enfranchising people is not reckless. If it was reckless, it would never have happened. I don't quite believe the old line, if voting changed anything, they would make it illegal. But it is true that there's always been this fear of enfranchising all sorts of groups who are felt must be excluded because of the danger they pose. But when those groups are enfranchised, actually not that much changes. But what does change is you get a new lease of life and democracy. That's what happens. It actually gives it a jolt of energy and it makes it slightly unpredictable again. In the scale of reckless things that we could be doing, this seems to me one of the less reckless ones. There may be lots of reasons why it's a bad idea. I completely accept that. But I don't think it's super dangerous. And there's a wider point here, which is that the one thing we don't seem to do is reform the fundamental way we do politics, the structures of it, the electoral systems, the the things that keep producing results actually that people are increasingly unhappy with. We do other things. It's hard. It's really hard to reform electoral systems. They need reform, many of them, in lots of different directions. But we don't do it, partly because we think it's a very dangerous thing to do. And I just don't think it is. I think there are more dangerous things out there. I'm not wedded to this idea, but I definitely think it's worth talking about. But I also think the balance of risk is worth talking about relative to some of the other things that we're doing. I welcome more feedback on this. Uh, The result uh, of the ballot uh, held this evening is that the Parliamentary Party does have confidence. does have confidence in Theresa May <laughs> as leader of the Conservative Party. Uh, the number of votes cast uh, in favour of uh, having confidence in Theresa May was 200 yeah. and against yeah. was 117. Yeah. Under the rules set out in the constitution of the Conservative Party, no further confidence vote can take place for at least yeah. two
It is just gone nine o'clock and that was the result. So what we said earlier today was strictly true, I guess, that Theresa May won. Uh, Helen has returned to her sickbed, but I just texted her to find out something intelligent that I could say. I'm actually going to read out her text. Helen texts in full sentences, I should say that. This is what she says. Need something to change at the EU end more than she did. But there can be no illusions there now that she can't, as things stand, get the withdrawal agreement through. So Helen's view, a vote which I have to say there were more people voting against her than I thought. I thought it would possibly be less than 100, is that she strengthened in one respect, Theresa May. She has more leverage because if the ultimate fear for everyone involved in these negotiations is no deal. No deal is now more realistic if this withdrawal agreement can't get through. It reminds me in a way of something that it's the opposite to, which is Jeremy Corbyn's confidence vote. He lost his decisively. The large majority of his parliamentary party voted against him and he was strengthened by losing it because it made clear that he was not beholden to them, that his real power was with the membership. She has won hers and she's been weakened by it because... Those 117 people are not going to make it possible for her to get her deal through. And if she says a win is a win and I want a majority, they can say, fine, but that number of people voting against you, we stand by our guns too. So the one thing that hasn't happened this evening is the only thing that's going to make this mess clearer, which is there are too many different options in play all at the same time, too many different possibilities and too many different interests prepared to die in a ditch for the thing that they believe in. And this is only going to be resolved and at some point it will have to be resolved as the options fall away one by one, eventually leading a pair of options that people have to choose between. And it seemed at least possible tonight that one of the options would fall away, which was that Theresa May would be strengthened and so a leadership challenge would disappear. She can't be challenged for another year, but she has been weakened by this. It doesn't feel like that option has gone away. It doesn't feel like people who feel the only way to resolve this is to replace her as leader will now be persuaded that they were wrong. So all the options are still in play. One by one, they will have to fall away. Eventually, there will have to be a binary choice. Something that is possible is that as the deadline looms, given that Parliament now knows that it can revoke Article 50 without asking anyone's permission, the final choice might end up being no deal or revoke Article 50, something that would have seemed incredible. But at some point, all the options have to fall away bar two, and then there'll be one. Who knows what might happen over the next month? We will not leave you in the lurch if it really kicks off. I will drag Helen back from wherever she is, and we're going to talk about it. But until then, we're going to do what we did over the summer, which is put out twice a week, some guides with some really interesting people to things that we often talk about or we mention in passing, but we never really go into in detail and try and describe the background and talk about the wider implications. We've got lots of fascinating people and topics coming up. Martin Rees on existential risk, Matthew Taylor on deliberative democracy, Helen's going to be talking about Bretton Woods, Diane Coyle on economic well-being. We're going to start with Gary Gerstel on the American Constitution really hope that you enjoy these, give you some listening, which isn't the usual stuff over Christmas. And then we will be back in the new year to pick up where we left off. Until then, have a lovely Christmas. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. <laughs> <laughs> you will be right Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.